Welcome to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth Podcast with your hosts, Shari Lyon and Nicola Lay. Together, we bring over 30 years of experience in working with women and partners through education, breathing, mindfulness, and evidence-based information, and nurturing you through this transformation into motherhood. Join us on this journey as we connect with women and partners, mentoring, supporting, and navigating the ups and downs of becoming parents. Welcome to episode 30 of the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth Podcast. Nicola and I, Shari Lyon, are super excited that you are here today because we have a really special guest on our podcast. Her name is Dr. Kate Levitt. So Kate Levitt is a practitioner and a researcher of Japanese and Chinese acupuncture. She also has 20 years experience as an acupuncturist, researcher, birth educator, and teacher. Kate's particular interests are in women's health, including menstrual issues, fertility, pregnancy, labor, and birth preparation, and menopause. She has an interest in treating migraines, endometriosis, chronic pain conditions, and sleeping issues, and she believes that acupuncture is extremely effective for hormonal balance within the body to help a large number of health issues that women in particular face. Kate is a mentor for the International Maternal Acupuncture Mentoring Program, and she enjoys mentoring up-and-coming acupuncturists in the specific maternity acupuncture treatment strategies. She is a consultant for independent childbirth education programs in Australia and internationally, um, such as the Hypnobirthing Australia program, and is a, a researcher as well. And she also conducted a study back in 2016 called the Complementary Therapies in Childbirth Study. We are super excited to have her on the podcast. There is lots of juicy information about how acupuncture and acupressure points can help you through labor and birth. Welcome, Kate, to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth podcast. Nicola and I are super excited to chat to you today. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Kate, you and I actually met, I think I was just thinking actually uh, in the card on the way here to do this interview with you. I think it was about three years ago. I think it was in Brisbane for our first Hypnobirthing Australia or the first Hypnobirthing Australia conference that you attended. And I know that you had the study had just been released. So I'm, I think that was around 2016 the yep. study was released. Was that correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. So it must have been 2017 um, that we first met and it was I just loved learning from you and understanding the power of acupressure points and even acupuncture, which is, is your background. But And now we teach what you have taught us in our Hypnobirthing Australia classes. So that's why we wanted to bring you on today because <laughs> we've really seen um, a, a rise in, in complementary therapies now coming into childbirth and it's helping women and couples to have more positive experience. But we'd love to hear a little bit about your story and how you became an acupuncturist. And then now you, you conduct these researches. Yeah. Well, I also just, I think I'm so, I feel really fortunate that I have partnered up with Hypnobirthing Australia in particular because of the the way that antenatal education can be used, like the vehicle can be just so important to get um, information to women and really drive some good outcomes. And um, people like you who really are invested in normal birth and using all the techniques, I just, I feel really fortunate that that we've been able to do this together and, um, and use this information in a way that's really positive for women and their partners. So thank you for being a great advocate. I really oh, gosh, Thank you. No, your work is amazing. So yeah. Um, so a bit, of, oh, a bit about this, the story, I suppose. I got into acupuncture about 20 odd years ago. And when I first started having acupuncture, um, when I was in my very early 20s for just uh, for some heavy periods, that's how I started. And one of my sisters introduced me to a Sydney acupuncturist. And I just, from the minute I met him, I just thought the whole thing was magic. And I thought, I just have to learn how to do this. And I was doing an education degree at the time and I finished doing that. Um, and, and almost immediately went on to do acupuncture because I just really thought I knew it was a thing I wanted to do from the moment I started having it. So that is what started it. And for some reason, I was just always interested in maternal health. 
and all my projects at uni, I always centered it around pregnancy and I always did little projects on it. And I did my um, clinical hours with people who um, focused on pregnancy. So I just always had a, um, an interest and I'm not sure what it was, but I was just fascinated by the way that pregnancy could be um, assisted with acupuncture and just pregnancy all by itself. I just thought it was an amazing thing that our bodies, you know, an incredible thing that our bodies do and we don't even have to do anything. It just all happens. <laughs> I love that, Kate. And um, what about your own journey into your own pregnancies? Um, so I was, when I was um, a little, when I started having kids, I started working um, as a research assistant and then as a researcher and I gradually um, worked my way up um, because I wanted to get into research and because I just while I was having children I thought working in the hospital and university systems would be um, a good way to incorporate my knowledge and skills and, and be able to do that and so that's where I started to get into research and um, and as I was having babies I I kind of forgot about my background and became put my research hat on and forgot about my acupuncture hat for a while. And that became quite apparent when, um, when I had a very, well, an interventional birth and particularly for my second child. And I had a complication, which meant I could not have an epidural for my third baby. And they said to me, well, you can't have an epidural, which I had just taken as standard practice by then because I'd become quite medicalised in my research training. Um, they said, oh, you can't have an epidural now because of this complication that, that you've had. There was, um, I had a, a DVT and a pulmonary embolus after my second baby was born. And they said, well, you, it's a, the epidural is a risk factor. And that was the first time that anybody had ever put those two things together for me, that, that having an epidural and having um, a clot afterwards were associated with each other. And it was like this penny dropped. And I thought, oh, my, and it all came flooding back to me about why I was, pursue, you know, why I should be pursuing a normal birth and how much I had forgotten and what was I doing. And it was a little bit of a crisis for me in the moment of that pregnancy. Wow. And, um, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm already pregnant, though. How will I get this baby out if I can't have an epidural? This is disastrous. And that's when I started to investigate, go back again, what, what happens with the acupuncture and acupressure? How do I do the breathing techniques? I did, um, I did a calm birth and then I also did some hypnobirthing as well. I did both of those programs in Sydney. Calm birth was what was available in our, at our local hospital. And, um, and then I did hypnobirthing and then I met Melissa and those things started to, to fall into place. And so I brought those techniques back up and going from being quite afraid of labour and contractions and all of the things that you hear classically from people to having one of the most profound experiences of my life in that third birth and having a water birth and using acupressure and having my husband be there and present in a way that he um, had always wanted to be but didn't know how to be prior to that. Um, and that training for us was just, was like such a revelation that I, um, and then I thought, okay, I'm never going back to that kind of research again. I'm going to go and do my own research project. I'm going to start running my own programs and um, developing my own um research protocols and and that's what started it so about when my last baby was about 10 months old I enrolled in a PhD program and looking at the at developing an antenatal education program using complementary therapies and that's where it all started so thanks to my little baby who's now 10 and will soon be 11 um, that kind of transformed how I approached birth and my whole practice and and then keeping on with my research practice, but going in a different direction and also then getting back, uh, getting a strong clinical practice back together again. So it, it was through my birth that this all came about that I wanted to put this together for other women and, and try and address some of the, the problems that can be created through complications of interventions. 
I love that. Mm-hmm. We're finding this is like the common theme with so many, like with, with both Nicola and I, our journeys, it was through our own also experiences as well that we've now in this work and through some of the other um, guests that we've had on the podcast, it's all, all very the same. And it's kind of like this calling of being like, I can't keep this information to myself, every single woman and mm. partner deserves to at least have the opportunity to learn or, or gain this knowledge and whether or not they apply it in their own birth, um, you know, is, is up to them. But that, that's amazing. That's beautiful. Um, would you mind sharing a little, ba- little bit about the complementary, is it the complementary therapies in labour and birth study that you conducted? Yes, that's, um, that's what it's called. And unfortunately, we didn't use the, um, the word antenatal education in the title, and so it's often missed when people are searching for it. So anyone out there's looking for it, it's free access to the public on um, BMJ Open, um, Complementary Therapies for Labour and Birth Study is the name of it. And so what, what we did um, was trialled a two-day antenatal education program that included the um, information about normal physiological births, information about mindset and the hormones of labour. And then once those two things were in place um, and also partner support, like how to facilitate partner support, um, and then we introduced five different complementary medicine techniques that people could use to facilitate their pregnancy as well as their birth. So ways to um, calm the nervous system, ways to activate the hormonal systems, ways to access um, the body's own resources. And I, mean, I think it's, it's important to, to know that you can't create hormones out of nothing. So this is not some kind of magic creation, um, do acupressure, create oxytocin. It's a complementary tool to get the, the system in a woman's own body to to start to respond to cues and to be able to maximise the hormones that she has in herself, which may be by allowing for some calmness and to settle the nervous system down and to do breathing techniques and just allow that woman to drop into her body in a way that her hormones can, can activate and can work with her, or it may be getting the system to wind up a little bit if there's a little bit of sluggishness or low energy to be able to wind up, to be able to use the hormones of birth to and facilitate um, a strong and powerful birth. Or it may be to, um, you know, allow partners to, to be part of it and to access the body's own system by activation and stimulation of the body. So you're not creating it out of nothing. You're working with an individual woman and her partner to be able to use the body's own system for the best possible birth that she can have. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, what I've seen through my years of being a therapist is that a lot of people shy away from doing complementary therapy at the beginning or even the whole way through their pregnancy because it's deemed as not very safe. Mm. So can you sort of give our listeners some kind of feeling of comfort that the safety in this work is, is you know, truly amazing Mm. um yes i think the safety in our study we did look at some safety aspects as well because that is the commonest um criticism of complementary therapies you're right you know people are saying on the one hand oh it's rubbish it doesn't work and on the other hand all it's not safe you shouldn't do it but you can't have it both ways so we um when people people are often scared off by those two opposing kind of viewpoints about complementary therapies and in certain circumstances, women do need medical assistance and so they should follow the advice of doctors and midwives and allied health professionals um, where, that's, where that's required um, and also to be able to access um, information from complementary therapists who might be able to assist them to just to um, maintain as much normalcy in their pregnancy and birth as possible. So in the study that we did, um, we The five therapies, I forgot to mention, the five therapies that we used were breathing, massage, acupressure, yoga, and visualisation. And women on average, we um, surveyed them afterwards, on average used between three and four different techniques during their birth. 
So which is why we think it's good to have several techniques because you never know what will resonate with a woman or, or her partner. And so they can choose between different things and then different things work at different times during the birth. So you can move on from massage to breathing to acupressure, whatever, as the birth progresses. And we looked at outcomes like the baby's um, APGAR scores and requirement for resuscitation, admission to NICU, um, any um, adverse outcomes for women. And what we found was that there were in the study group and the control group just had standard antenatal care through the hospital. The study group had standard antenatal care plus this two-day program. Um, And we found that babies who were... um, who were born from women in the study group, there was less requirement for resuscitation at birth. Fewer babies had APGARs less than seven and um, fewer babies were admitted to the NICU or special care nurseries. But only the um, resuscitation, so requirement for resuscitation was the only statistically significant result. Um, But also there um, there was no difference in rates of postpartum hemorrhage for women either or other adverse events. So we can say that women who participated in this study were, um, there was no no adverse outcomes that was greater than usual care. And in fact, in some instances, there were fewer fewer adverse outcomes than usual care. And then Deborah Betts and I, who Deborah Betts is a New Zealand acupuncturist, we have also done a systematic review looking at um, safety outcomes for acupuncture in, um, in pregnancy. And there are there are what we call forbidden points in pregnancy. So there are points that you shouldn't use before 37 weeks because they are um, cervical ripening points or some people call them labour activation points. So for safety's sake, things like doing deep squats before 37 weeks or doing these particular acupressure points before 37 weeks or other strenuous exercise, things that you would sensibly um, just uh, hold on, or you know, you would reserve or not do during pregnancy. This also applies to acupuncture and acupressure. So we have um, stipulations around not using these points before 37 weeks, and then what other points can be used all through pregnancy. So, and when Deborah and I looked at um, the safety outcomes for for other research protocols where those points are used during pregnancy for back pain, so there's a particular point on the hand. Um, that's and and some on the back that's used for cervical ripening, but also routinely used for back pain. Um, and when applied in pregnancy, we did see that there was quite a bit of bias in these results in that there were high dropout rates. So you can't say that it's safe to use these points during pregnancy before 37 weeks. And so you should see an acupuncturist who has some qualifications or experience with pregnancy. So you wouldn't just... Um, go to any old person, I would find out if they've got safety, if they've got pregnancy experience. Um, And also all the Hypnobirthing Australia um, educators all know that these points are reserved until after 37 weeks. And when used appropriately, not only is it all quite safe, but we see a reduction in adverse outcomes. So um, I think that those safety questions are quite well answered by the research so far. Yeah, great. And what were the reductions that you found when it came to, was there a a reduction in in intervention in birth? Yes, there was. And um, so I just have some, a little bit of the data here and um, apologies for reading it off, but that's probably an easy way to do it. Um, When we looked at epidural analgesia, so that was our main outcome because the study groups were um, relatively small. So we thought we would look at epidurals initially And we found a a 65% reduction in epidurals. So there was 23% of women, 24% of women used epidurals in the study group versus 68% of women in the control group who used epidurals. And you might say 68% is a pretty high epidurals. Um, And it may be that in this particular study group, women were quite anxious, but they still showed Um, a significant reduction from the control group to the study group, which was um, great to see. We saw an increase in spontaneous onset of labour, not significant. There was a significant decrease in augmentation used during labour from 58% to 29%. There was um, 
And and the big one that we found was there was a significant reduction in cesarean section from 32% in the study group, in the control group, which is about the Australian average at the time, to 18% in the study group, which is what the WHO, around the WHO recommendations for cesarean section rates. Wow. So saw a reduction in instrumental births from 20% to 13%. Um, and... And for perineal trauma, in um, any perineal trauma, there was a reduction from 96%, including episiotomies, which is just really high, um, to 84%. Yeah. Wow. But that proportion was consistent with the hospitals that were, in, um, that were involved in our study. So that's using these techniques like breathing, visualisation, movement, you know, yoga, active birthing positions, the acupressure points mm-hmm. uh, and partner involvement. That was kind of combining these techniques. So it it wasn't, your study wasn't specifically just on acupressure points in labour and birth, was it? That's right. Yeah, using all of those techniques taught to the women and partners um, and then they could, they were free to choose how they used it during the, during the labour. Yeah, wow. So how, how could you please explain to us, like, how does acupuncture and acupressure points actually work in the body? What actually happens um, with the body? Just so that um, our listeners could understand so that maybe they, it's something that they could look into more or learn more for themselves or go and see an acupuncturist to, to learn more. How does acupuncture actually work? Well, it's kind of debated how, what the actual mechanism of effect is. So there's a few different um, things that we could look at. There are, when studies have looked at MRIs for um, brain imaging while having acupuncture or acupressure, what they've seen is that there's a regulation in hormonal systems in the brain. So where someone uh, might need upregulation of a particular um, hormonal neurotransmitter, that occurs, and where they need a downregulation, that also occurs. So there's some kind of regulatory mechanism in the body that does what the body needs, either upregulates or downregulates depending on the requirement of that particular person for the same point. So there's a body uh, like an effect where where the body goes into homeostasis or looks for a homeostatic um, position for the body to be in. So that's that outcome is seen in the um, in the MRI imaging but we're not very sure about how that actually happens. My own point of view is that it's um, along the fascia lines in the body and the acupuncture meridians seem to correspond to fascial lines um, throughout the body. And that is a pretty um, pretty quick um, transmission of information through the body using, through the fascia. There's also um, deep needle stimulation that looks at the um, nervous system and how the nervous system responds to that stimulation that it might be like a a pain-blocking effect. Um, There's a thought that there's also an an immunological effect where the acupuncture stimulates an immune response in the body, which is then the regulatory effect in the brain. Um, People often talk about whether there's a placebo effect, so say for pain relief, um, if you use the points on the hand, the what happens when you use that point on the hand is that there's an a, an increased release of um, or sorry there's an a res, the receptors for um, natural or endogenous opioids in the body are um, are open to the opioid so the opioid receptors become available when you use the acupressure points. The placebo effect, when there's um, a point versus placebo, there's an anticipatory release of endorphins or opioids in the body. So the placebo might be an anticipatory release of endorphins and the real effect might be the availability of the, of the receptors for the endorphins. And so, in effect, the placebo and the real effect in the short term are sort of doing the same thing by having the effect of opioids. So I say in birth, if it's the placebo effect or the real effect, it doesn't really matter because it's going to help you with the opioids or the um, the endorphins in the body. That's going to help with pain relief. So when we do longer-term studies, that's when you see the real effect coming out. But in the short term, there is, and I'd hate to say the placebo effect because that has the implication that it's fake. It's just that the body, in anticipation of having some pain relief, releases its own endorphins, and so it has the same kind of effect as as acupuncture and when there's 
three groups of when they've got nothing, when they've got a, um, a placebo stimulation, then they've got the real stimulation. It goes up in effect. The, the, um, and often the placebo and the real group are not so different because of this anticipatory release. Mm, I love all of that. And so then how does this then, then work with an induction-based um, birth? Right. So this seems to be um, the thing of the moment. There's Well, there's always been lots of inductions, but people are getting really interested in how we can manage inductions. And I have, I'm really interested in this right now and was just about to put in a, um, a proposal and an ethics application to be able to do some interviews with women and partners about how they managed an induced labour using these, these techniques. So to get really behind the information, what did, how did they use it and why did they think it helped? Because we anecdotally we hear lots of reports from people and I spend a lot of time in my clinic doing preparation sessions for, um, for induction or sometimes for known complications where there might be a caesarean. We prepare women for that um, or if they're, if they're really certain about having an epidural, we prepare how can we use these tools when having an epidural so that we can prevent this cascade of interventions. So that's the main thing that we're talking about. How do we prevent the cascade of interventions if we are already having a known medical intervention? How can we manage that to help women be able to have the most normal birth possible? And so with inductions, um, we start off using that there's an inner ankle point, spleen six. So when, when they're starting to have the induction, instructing partners about how to um, activate that point so that the woman's own um, oxytocin system is activated and there's an, a release of her own oxytocin, endogenous oxytocin, as opposed to the external syntocin or um, pitocin or whatever they call it in America, um, so that they so that the body's own response will be assisted and so every contraction we look at how can we stimulate the body and then using moderate pressure massage as well there's a particular massage technique in um, Chinese medicine tuina and so we use how do we use tuina to activate the oxytocin system as well so that the woman's own system starts to take over so that she won't need maybe so much of the synthetic oxytocin Um, And then once she's in established labour, then we move on to how do we keep the body upright, mobile, um, moving so that her own hormonal systems are activated and then using massage techniques and then going on to pain relief techniques. So using the back points, that bladder 32 in the sacral foramen in the back um, and using the hand points, large intestine four, there for the pain relief points. So how do we activate those, keep the body moving, support the woman, Um, being close enough so that there's um, physical contact if she wants it, um, which also activates her hormone system if she's close enough to be able to even unconsciously smell the partner. That activates a whole hormonal system in itself as well. Um, And having skin-to-skin contact with the partner, so I encourage as much closeness as possible so that all those hormones can be released as long as she wants it. Um, And then as we move closer towards... um, towards transition using the shoulder point um, gallbladder 21 to help with the baby down and the baby down breathing and then using the breathing techniques that you'll know from um, from hypnobirthing Australia the baby down breaths and also the um, breaths during the contraction and how to not clench the jaw and clench the perineum mm-hmm. so kinds of um, those kind of that kind of information about how do we keep the body activated um, moving how do we support the woman? using particularly massage and acupressure and then how do we combine breathing and visualisation. And I always refer people if they want tracks. Um, I think the best tracks are on that the Hypnobirthing or the Hypnobubs website. Refer people there to get um, to get those visualisation tracks to be able to play during labour. Yeah, beautiful. And then using all of those together, um, creating the right atmosphere, talking about the hormones that are created or, you know, assisted when we've got low lighting, um, we've got warmth, there's um, a cosy space created, privacy, all of that stuff, how that assists. And partners are just, they love all that stuff. They really want to know how to get in there and help women and they really don't want to be that archetypal fly-on-the-wall person who doesn't really know what they're doing that the midwives laugh at. They want to be in there. They want to be supporting her and, 
and they definitely what I've seen has helped for yeah. sure and to have the birth partners kind of come up to me and, and it's the same like the work that Nicola and I do, do together um, very much is about getting the birth partners involved and getting them to understand what their role is to be able to assist and for them to be that that neocortex for the mum that if they see that that the the birthing mother is having is expressing pain in in her back that he or she whoever it is knows I know something that could possibly help let's let's try this and yeah. I mean, I kind of say to my parents, hopefully you don't need to use any of these techniques and you just, you know, you go through, but at least it's like a toolkit. We call it the toolkit. And um, I think going in, knowing that they do have things that they can draw on to at least try before having the morphine or the pethidine or the epidural um, or hopefully avoiding induction if that helps because that was one thing that I had heard and I hadn't really heard about acupuncture very much at all um, until I was pregnant and then had um, friends going, oh, you need to go and get acupuncture. It'll help bring the baby on. And I had a massive fear of needles. So I was like, there's no way you're going to get me laying on a table and having all these needles put in me. Um, so I actually didn't use use acupuncture for my first pregnancy. It wasn't until I became a practitioner and saw the benefits of it that I was like, oh, and also I gave birth. So I thought, well, if I can get over my fear of birth, I can get over my fear of needles. <laughs> and I went and had it. And I'm like, it's nothing like having like a needle that draws blood that makes me feel queasy and actually was so relaxing. Um, but that that was another question I just wanted to ask. Like I find that most women tend to wait and it, they use it as a way to, as a natural way to, in, I'm putting in commas, induce labor. So could you mind, would you mind maybe explain like how, how would that, is does that just because of the hormone, it, because it helps release the hormones? Is that, because it doesn't, it can't, like you said, it, it's not going to cause Mm. it can't make you go into labor if your body's not ready it won't make you go into labor yep. it's assisting isn't it yeah so i think the much preferable term to use is cervical ripening and that's how i refer to it this is um, these treatments will help ripen the cervix and when people do end up going for inductions they say that it was much, they get into labor much more easily than they thought they don't need to use as much Sintol or whatever it is because they've had preparation with acupuncture. So it gets the cervix right. But it, if you don't have the hormones, you're right, it can't put you into labor. And all the evidence that, you know, there's a, been a couple of research trials done and there's no difference between the study group and the control group in terms of spontaneous onset of labor. But there is a difference in length of labor once they are in labour, regardless of how it happens, um, and um, and pain relief required during labour. So I I think it really assists in taking the edge off an induced labour, which can be a really, you know, tricky, sharp, difficult kind of labour by having an induced labour. So if you can take the edge off those sharp contractions and be able to um, to be able to manage that a bit, that makes induced labours just so much easier to, to deal with. Mm. And, um, and then they don't always need epidurals because that seems to be the common thing. You have an induction, you have an epidural because it's so tricky to manage. Um, but you're right, having it, some people go into labour immediately because their body was ready to go and other people don't. And it just does depend on what's already there. And I, I think with... Um, People find it useful. I know you can't see me, but if you um, hold your fingertips together, just lightly holding your fingertips together, when you're pregnant and getting close towards the end of your pregnancy, you start to feel a pulsation through your fingertips there. And the closer you are to labour, the stronger that pulsation is. And so often women use that as a bit of a gauge of and it seems to correlate. They go into the hospital and they're like, oh, you know, cervix is still long and closed and their pulsations are still only, you know, one or two. Um, but as it gets up to sort of seven, eight, nine, and the pulsations are really strong, that's when you're starting to see some dilation or at least the cervix is um, shortening and opening, getting softer. Uh, so there's something that happens in the body that you can sort of gauge towards the end of pregnancy but it's also the baby too. So the baby releases surfactant from its lungs to get ready for extra uterine life. 
And that seems to be one of the triggers for the oxytocin system. So if bub's not ready, then mum's not going to go into labour. I love all of that. And I had um, an induced labour and I was having acupuncture, you know, every single week without fail. Um, And what we realised was that my little girl wasn't in the right position. Mm. So tell me about, I mean, I've seen and, and, you know, observed over a very long period of time, lots of acupuncturists um, claiming that they can help with baby positioning um, if they're in a breach or the wrong position. Um, yes, yeah, so there's some there's some pretty good evidence, and there's a systematic review being done right now about breach. So that the evidence suggests that um, using moxa, and some people will combine it with acupuncture, and other people won't. It just depends on your particular philosophy there. Um, using moxibustion, which is a herb that you um, burn on the little toes on this, the point bladder sixty seven, which is on the the little littlest toe on the upper outer corner of the toenail, um, you burn that herb about one to two centimeters away from the skin um, there, and that helps to turn a breach. And sometimes also can be used in the same way to turn a posterior baby. But you you would use that between thirty four and thirty seven weeks of pregnancy if you've got a in breach position. Um, you do that for twenty minutes per day, and there's um, acupuncturists will be able to show you how to do it and, and be able to um, supply you with moxibustion for that. Um, but I also like to combine that with um, looking at if there's pelvic tightening, if you have, if there's any sort of tightening on the left or the right side, if the pelvis is out of alignment so the baby can't turn around or if the muscles are super tight for one reason or another, lower back might be seized up. So looking at softening and opening up the pelvis as well to let the baby turn around looking at tight ligaments, joints, muscles, anything there that might be stopping the baby from going around. So in combination with that sort of sacroiliac um, treatment as well as the moxa treatment to help the baby go around. Um, And then we've seen that that is successful in about 50% of cases of breach. Some studies report up to 60%. Um, Then we also look at looking at ECVs, where they go and do that in the hospital, the external cephalo versions at the hospital, and you do that at about 37 weeks, and they in themselves are about 50% um, successful as well. But only, I think it's fewer than 10% of women actually try ECBs because it's reported to be quite uncomfortable, um, but it's 50% effective. And so I would say if someone's come, they've had this done, they're doing the moxa and it's not turned to the baby, then I would encourage them at 37 weeks to then go and do the ECV as well. So when you combine the two, it ends up being more like 65 to 70% effective when you do the MOXA and then the ECV. So I would put the two together if the MOXA itself hasn't turned the baby and there are different gestations anyway. So you can use the boat, use the two of them in combination with each other. And then posterior, there's different points that you would use to get the baby to turn around. Again, if the head's not quite right position, it may be that the pelvis is out of line. So looking at pelvic alignment. I have a lovely chiropractor who's down the road who I work with a lot with this as well, always looking for someone who's had experience with pregnancy. Um, So looking at pelvic alignment things as well so that the baby can get into the right position. And... And then postural stuff, so sitting always, sitting forward, doing the hands and knees thing so that the baby's spine, which is the heaviest part, will be encouraged to around with gravity. And movement, doing lunges, doing walking, all that sort of stuff to get the baby into a good position. So that's the general approach that I would use for positioning of, of babies. I love that we've interviewed um, a number of other amazing birth practitioners like Ginny Fang and Rachel Reed, and I just love how all this information, it's all connecting and we're all kind of saying the same thing. And it's, it's really beautiful to also hear that, you know, it takes a village to bring the baby into the world. So yeah. it, it takes many of us as well to be able to help those of you out there who are pregnant Um through body work, through education, through tools, through techniques, through support. Um, so it's just really beautiful to hear that what you're saying is also very much connecting with what Ginny Fang has said and Rachel mm-hmm. Reed. 
Um, yeah, that actually Ginny's um, work is so incredible and she just, I've seen her like one brief workshop that I saw her do and a lot of those techniques, those piriformis opening techniques are very similar to the acupuncture, acupressure techniques as well. So it was really gratifying to see, oh, you know, they're really similar and she's got such a good success rate and she's got all these really great techniques that she's put together and I really like the way she approaches that whole um, optimal positioning stuff. It's it's really great. Yeah. Have you found that um, medical professionals are also supporting these kinds of complementary therapies now? Some of them are and some of them are really good advocates and some of them are like, oh, well, you may as well, it can't hurt and others warn against. So there's sort of three camps mm. and I just keep, saying to clients, you know, tell your doctor you've been here so that they know you're working with me and and you get some referrals too and often people, often what I see referrals are for women who are highly anxious, obstetricians will refer for that um, and for breach. They're the two ones that I see mostly, um, which is a start. It's great. Um, and, yeah, but a lot of it is, oh, well, if you want to, I suppose it can't hurt. That seems to be the way that goes. Mm. Midwives are more open, obviously. Sorry, what, what's the difference between acupuncture and then what I teach, acupressure? Because this is where I, we're sharing this information that you've shared with us for birth partners to be able to use this in labour. Mm. Well, I think the benefit of using acupressure, which is just using finger pressure um, on the acupuncture points, um, the benefit of that is that you can teach partners to do. It's non-insertive, so you're not going to have any problems with needles or bleeding or anything like that. You can use it at any point in the hospital system, which is really good because you can't you, you can't always do acupuncture in the hospital and you need to be um, a registered practitioner and you need to have special permission to go in and you blah, 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 but you don't need to do that if you're using acupressure. And I really, I honestly think the most empowering thing for a woman's birth is when she and her partner or partners are able to get together as a team and they've got a bond and an energy between them that supports her and I think there's nothing more powerful than that. And so giving that tool to other people to support her at the end of the day is going to be much more beneficial for her and their birth and their whole bonding process and we've seen when, when men are in the room for labouring women, their hormones change too. So testosterone goes down and prolactin goes up, so that's their parenting hormones. So you're really looking at a bonding of a family when, you're, when you teach them rather than disempower them by you being the expert in there. So when handing it over to couples, I think, is a really powerful thing to do for their birth and, and their um, future family bonding. That's amazing. I just, I'm really, um, it's just really inspiring to hear you talking about all of these topics today because I feel like um, people just are not looking at the box often when they're in in their pregnancies and heading into into labour. And I feel that this is the change that we need to see moving forward. Yeah, I think, and I really think that consumers, if we can call them that, drive change in systems. And so the more more people that we can reach and they start to demand change within the system, then the system has to start accommodating that. And the more we move towards woman-centred care or person-centred care um, in general medicine and individual um, care, the more we'll be able to use these sorts of tools and techniques um, and the system, I think, will start to shift along, along with it with any luck. Yes, we hope. We hope. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I just think going straight to the woman through things like Hypnobirthing Australia, where you can go straight to um, women without having to change the system, you're there changing, you know, one heart at a time kind of thing. That's when, that's when we really empower women. And when women, I would really like to see the evidence for this, but there's some, there's some um, the long-term follow-up of women and partners looking at their family bonding, their postnatal depression rates, all of those things, because we've started to see some evidence around 
um, using synthetic oxytocin in labour, that when syntocinin is used, women are more at risk um, of them. They're more likely to become postnatally depressed than women who don't use synthetic oxytocin. And I think that activation of a person's own hormonal system is really, really important for her well-being, for baby bonding, for family bonding, and I just think it's all about activating those hormones in whichever way is good for the woman and the partner and the baby and the team. And I think that that can sometimes be really, you know, really life-saving for some women if if they can avoid some postnatal depression or they can, you know, be avoid a cesarean or something like that. And I, and I resonate with that deeply because in my first um, pregnancy, I had acupuncture regularly and being a therapist myself, I knew it was really, you know, aligned with everything that I needed to be able to get through having um, hyperemesis as well. Mm. And, and I feel that even though I did the hypnobirthing course as well, even though I had an induced labor, my outcome was so much better because I was so um, focused on looking after my mental and my physical um, being as I headed into my induction. Yeah, it's really that mindset and um, focus is really, really important. And you think, you know, if you were really uninformed um, and just going in like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen, I'm just going to see, you, you can imagine all the stuff that might have happened. Yeah. Yeah, being informed and educated is just is I feel very, very passionate about it. And you see everyday women like you who, you know, maybe were saved some kind of poor outcome by your, you know, your focus and mental attitude. And just to sort of, you know, wrap it up for those moms that now we're talking about postnatal depression, mm. do you feel that um, the care of the postnatal woman as she heads into matrescence is is something that you are doing any more study doing any studies on at the moment at all? Well, I would like to. Uh, unfortunately, longer term studies are expensive, so it's a matter of getting finance, you know, funding through um, grants and things. But on a personal note, level, anyone who comes to see me for maternity care, so through a pregnancy, um, I always get them to come back, have a complimentary postnatal treatment. So I think it's really, really important to have that kind of, you know, in, in quotes, complimentary treatment, like it's not meant to be as fluffy as I make it sound. I really want her to come back so I can assess any kind of um, predisposition towards postnatal depression. If she's had a significant blood loss, if she's um, got particular pattern, uh, you know, a Chinese medicine pattern that I can see, I really want to assess how she and the baby are doing afterward. And so when you've had a little baby, you often think, oh, look, I'm not going back to acupuncture. And so I feel it's important to say, oh, you know, it's a mother warming, um, come back for your complimentary mother warming session so that, you know, so really I can make an assessment about any risk. Um, But also because it's nice to just connect with them afterward as well. And that mother warming idea that they have in um, Chinese medicine about the 40 days, you don't necessarily have to adhere to, you know, not doing anything for 40 days, although that might be nice. Um, You, to be able to have people around you helping you out, being nourished properly, continuing to focus on yourself rather than this idea of, oh, I've got to get out there and I've got to be back in the gym and I've got to be running and I've got to be this the minute I give birth, which some, often women feel pressured to get their bodies back really quickly. Yes. And, you know, it's important to build strength, build um, good nutrition, build good muscles before you go out and just overlay other intense stuff on top of it, you, you know, slowly building your body back up and and just being there for, for the baby. You know, it's kind of that nine months, nine months on, nine months off to get yourself slowly back together again and just to give yourself a little bit of a break about what you should or shouldn't be doing um, and just really making assessments. So I see that the thing that's, a, that's most associated with a postnatal depression would be using, um, having a significant amount of um, synthetic oxytocin having a significant blood loss afterwards, so you've got a blood deficiency in Chinese medicine um, or any kind of liver stagnation pattern. So you would be looking at those. Um, Are we at risk of any of these and then what can we do about it and how can we avoid maybe going down the the postnatal depression track or or other problems? Um, Or if there's any um, 
uh, breastfeeding issues or how to avoid mastitis or stuff like that. So oh, I think kind of, yeah, on a personal level, I feel like it's really, really important. And on a research level, yes, I'd like to get more funding to have a look at long-term outcomes. Oh, I would love to see funding for you for this because it's definitely something, you know, we're all about the birth and the pregnancy, but, you know, the aftermath is as important after to to support the mum. So thank you. And I do hope that we get funding for you to be able to do that. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So, Kate, how can some of our listeners learn more from you? Um, I understand you you have created an actual acupressure for labour and birth online mini it's kind of a a small online course haven't you yes so there's um on my website there's some links to to a couple of things so there's a downloadable sheet where you can the cheat sheet looking at different acupressure points that you can use during um, pregnancy and labor Um, and then there's a little video series so you can look at um, the video series of 16 different points and combinations about how to use acupressure and um, in what circumstance you might use it, as well as, you know, how to actually do the acupressure itself. And then for practitioners, there's, um, I'm uh, making a couple of, made a couple of video series, one for China Books Australia and one for Healthy Seminars, which is based in Canada, um, about how to, how to use these ideas in your own um, clinical practice and one of them is the Healthy Seminars is very focused on how to structure a one-hour consultation doing the education for a woman and her partner. So how can you structure that one hour to get as much information across with your background knowledge, but you don't need to impart all of that? What, what can you tell a woman and a partner in a one-hour session that's going to help them to maximise their potential in labour and birth and, you know, quickly running through all of those sorts of things and how to manage... Um, inductions epidurals cesareans instrumental births how to manage all of that stuff so practitioners china books and healthy seminars and consumers uh, on the website there's a little video series and cheat sheet perfect well we'll put all of the links for that in our show notes and you know i mums i really hope that those of you listening Mm. look at look at this option because it could really make a huge difference for your labor and birth experience and really just empower both you and your birth partner with some hands-on techniques um, that I've been getting amazing amazing feedback from because I teach these techniques now in my courses so um, thank you so much Kate for taking the time to chat to us like and we you know we'd love to stay in touch with any other studies that you might be doing or have you on again one day (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. And anyone out there, if they're wanting, I'm based in Sydney, but if you're looking for referrals, I'm more than happy to put people in touch with good practitioners that I know. Um, Or if you're in the North Sydney area, come see me at West Street Wellbeing. Um, But there's lots of really great practitioners, you know, everywhere. And we've got a good network so we can find people for you wherever you are. Perfect. Thanks so much, Kate. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that it's helped you on your own journey. We would love it if you would subscribe and leave us a review. To learn more about our individual online or face-to-face courses or be mentored by us for your own birth, please see our show notes for the links to our programs.